It is indeed sweet to trust Jesus. I'm sure you have uh, seen the video clips if you've watched news. Uh, and I don't know if you have, it seems like they show the same picture of the virus, whatever that, 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 that looks like again and again. But they also often uh, switch to clips of doctors putting on their protective gear. And I did a, a little reading on what kind of protective deer, gear a doctor needs. And really, I was kind of prompted this by uh, hearing one of uh, Cornerstone Bible Church's doctors, Hyuns, describing uh, the, the, the multiple gloves people wear. So I found in a, uh, the, a, a, a coronavirus toolkit published by Massachusetts General Hospital describes the personal protective, uh, 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 the personal protective equipment worn by a doctor. Describes the uh, gown that they put on, a clean, non-sterile, disposable isolation gown is tied in the back, the N95 mask, the, 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 the respirator. I think all of us have heard of that N95 mask now, even us who aren't doctors or in healthcare. The, the goggles or the face shield that protect just as much from, from touching your own face uh, as it does from any potential spray. The gloves, and often doctors wear multiple pairs of gloves. In ages, in ages past, ancients would have looked for protection elsewhere, not knowing about these microscopic smaller than cell viruses. One place that they looked was Psalm 91, this morning's passage. See, this morning's passage has an interesting history that really be, be, begins in uh, a little bit before the Middle Ages and during the Middle Ages. The Jewish teaching, the, the Talmud, calls this psalm the Song of Plagues. And it was said that one who recites it with faith in God will be helped by him in time of danger. So in time of plagues, you could recite the Psalm 91 and kind of like a magical charm, be, be protected. The Psalm was also recited by, 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 by Jews during the Middle Ages to drive away demons and evil spirits. It was inscribed on, on amulets by both Christians and Jews, but who fell into cultic ideas that having this amulet would avert the, the uh, evil influence or bad luck. So there's ancient amulets with parts of Psalm 91 inscribed on them as a good luck charm. Whether it is putting on scientific uh, protection your personal protective equipment and your N95 mask or magical amulets. Both of these are put on because you're aware that you're mortal. By those who know that they're in danger, sometimes by a foe that they can't see. Psalm 90 sets up Psalm 91 well. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And Psalm 90 is about the shortness of our lives as humans. The prayers teach us to number our days that we may present you a heart of wisdom. And in a sense, uh, the, the, the internet and coronavirus are working together to help us number our days. Every day, as many times as you want, you can go online and see how many new cases of, uh, of coronavirus have been reported as well as how many people have passed away. And these real-time statistics are sobering. Each day, the clock resets and the, the count starts again at zero. We all know that we could be one of those numbers. So how do we not live in fear? While at the same time, knowing that for each of us, death is certain, and not necessarily death from this virus or any virus, but we all know that we are mortal and that we are someday going to die. Well, Psalm 91 answers that question. How do we know we're gonna die and yet not live in fear? In Psalm 91, the psalmist equips God's people to respond to danger and death so that they can focus on, on fulfilling God's commands. So what happens in Psalm 91? The psalmist, we don't know who wrote it, equips God's people to respond to danger and death 
so they can focus on fulfilling God's commands. So we're going to see four responses we need to have when facing danger and death. And some of you, that is real. As you're putting on double gloves to deal with contagious patients. For some of us, it might feel further away. But the reality is we need to wisely number our days. We don't know how long we have. So how do we continue to obey God in a world of so many and so many unknowns? Who would have ever thought we'd have someone come in our house with gloves on or have them wash their hands before leaving? This Psalm 91 is structured like a teaching. It's, it, it's kind of like a, 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 a one-sided, uh, 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 I was going to say a one-sided conversation, but conversation is two-sided. It's like a monologue, but, 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 there's, but there's different parts to it. It sounds like it is a conversation going on between a mentor and, and the one he is teaching, his mentee. It may help you as you read this psalm to imagine maybe Moses encouraging Joshua, David instructing Solomon, or Paul, Timothy, or really any parent to their child. And the teacher begins in verse 1 with a profound truth. I'm going to read to you verse 1. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I'm going to read it again. It's a powerful verse. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And verse, run, verse 1 is Psalm 91 summarized in one line. The psalmist, in a sense, could mic drop after this and exit the stage. It's a concise summary of God's, of God's protection. It's the theme of this whole psalm. The first part of the verse has the, has the qualification of, of God's protection. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. To dwell means to stay and to make your home and to put down roots. Shelter is how this word is translated by both the New American Standard and the ESV. But many commentaries also like to translate it as the shelter word is a secret place or a hiding place. And shelter is a great word. But I do like that idea of a secret place or a hiding place. Not only safety, but also secrecy and being, and being alone with God. It's a picture of safety within God's throne room. See, God's people were not allowed physically to live in, in the tabernacle or the temple. But you can imagine someone in an extreme time of danger unrolling his sleeping bag in the tabernacle to hide out where no one would find him. And what's ironic here is that there is there was, when the temple was standing, the tabernacle was standing, no more dangerous place in the whole earth than in God's holy presence. But then that most dangerous place becomes the safest place. The psalm refers to the one who looks for protection, really not in a physical place, but in God himself and in only God. When, when children play hide and seek, there are many places to hide and they scamper through the house or through the building looking for the one place where they think that they'll be the safest. They pass over other places. They reject them looking for the one safe place, that hiding place. Well, those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High have put all their hopes in God. Because he is the highest one. Because there is no one greater than the most high. To dwell is permanent. It is a commitment we make. You've moved in and now you're going to stay. You're not couch surfing from home to home or from hope to hope. No, you dwell in the shelter of the most high. The second part of the verse has the promise of Protection for those who meet that, that, that qualifying. Uh, the uh, one who meets the qualification of protection, excuse me. And here's the promise of protection in the second half of verse one. They will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Abide, that means to stay as long as necessary. Even to, to, to spend the night in the shadow 
and shadow is important. It's important in Southern California. It's important in, in, in the Middle East. I don't know if you enjoy walking. It's crazy sometimes in the summer going on a walk at 9 or 10 in the morning in Southern California and how painful almost the, the, the sun is. And that may just be because I'm really pale. In the shadow, taking shelter from that dangerous, shriveling desert sun. It's the promise of rest under God's protection. Under God's careful attention. In the almighty shadow, there is respite and there is refuge. When life is hard and when the situation is dangerous and when there are so many unknowns. Maybe some of you have been crying out for shelter this week. Verse 1 is an invitation to you. As it is to the one whom the psalmist originally spoke. You too can rest in the shadow of the Almighty. You can rest from the burning heat of the sin-cursed world. If. You are the one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. And here is the first response we need to take. Dwell in God's presence. The first of four responses, dwell in God's presence. It's only possible to dwell in God's presence if you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there is no place more dangerous for sinners than the, most, than the presence of the Most High. So how does the holy place become a hiding place? Well, Colossians 1 verses 21 to 23 helps us with that. It describes how we were in our sin against God and we were doing our thing instead of God's ways. When it says, although you were formerly, formerly alienated and hostile in mind, that we were at war with God, that we were engaged in evil deeds, that we did what we wanted instead of what God commanded us to. And then in verse 22 of Colossians 1, it says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body, in Christ's fleshly body through death, through Jesus dying on the cross. We can be reconciled and made right with God in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And that is what God does when he declares the sinner righteous. When we come to him through faith, we are reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus Christ in order to present us before him holy and blameless and beyond approach so that we are welcome to dwell in his presence and i don't say this in a light way but we can make our home there we can unroll our sleeping bag we are welcome in our father's presence and then verse 23 says if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast continuing in faith that is how we enter into a relationship with jesus christ and that is how we continue. It is through faith, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And if you are visiting with us this morning, that is the gospel you've just heard. That is the good news. That is how we can dwell in God's presence. That is how we can be certain that we can rest in the shadow of the Almighty. It is by being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We must be made holy, made right with God. We must be justified and declared righteous if we're going to be at home in God's presence. We must be made holy if we're going to be at home in God's presence. Hebrews 10.10 describes how this happens. By this will we have been sanctified. We've been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We are sanctified. We are made holy. Welcome in God's presence through Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus dying in the place for sinners on the cross, Hebrews 6.19 verses 20, 19 and 20 describes that hope. This hope. We have an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil into the most holy place, our dwelling place in Christ Jesus, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. We're not alone there. We can never be alone there. He's gone into God's presence first, having become a high priest forever. And we are able to make God's dwelling place our home because jesus christ is our high priest hebrews 10 19 and 22 describes more of this hope therefore brethren since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh we go in through his sacrifice 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, confident, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And that is that work of Jesus Christ that he has done so that we can make God's presence our dwelling place. We can be confident in the Lord's shadow during this exposing heat of current circumstances. If you are at home in his presence, if you have had your guilt removed, if you have been reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are at peace with God through him, and if you are not this morning, please come to God through Jesus Christ. He is willing. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can make God's presence your dwelling place through faith in Jesus Christ. For those of you who are already at home, you are already at home in your father's presence. Have you been dwelling there? I mean, and I don't mean about where you are positionally in Christ, him with your high priest, but practically, have you been at home in God's presence during these unstable times? Have you been talking to him in prayer? Have you been listening to him in his word? Have you been enjoying your reconciled relationship with your father? Have you been avoiding bringing any unclean thing, any known sin into his presence, anything incompatible with his holiness? Have you been getting rid of it so that you can dwell there, so that you can enjoy your father's presence? Have you been sitting at your master's feet like Mary? or only very busy about your house, like Martha. Value intimacy with God the Father. Not just the intimacy that has been gained with Christ, not just your, 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 your position there, but the intimacy that can be enjoyed through his spirit that Christ gives to those who are in Christ Jesus. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Take advantage of these days inside your house. Enjoy being in your father's presence. We need to dwell in God's presence is the first response. We saw that in the profound truth of verse one. And we're going to now transition from the profound truth of verse one to the personal testimony in verse two. And this is where the psalmist declares what he's doing and where his heart is. It's like Joshua saying, it's for me and my house we will serve the Lord. Listen to what he says in verse two. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because of the timeless truth of Yahweh's commitment to those who dwell with him, because of the shadow that God provides, a psalmist places his confidence in my God as my refuge, as my fortress in whom I trust. And you can hear the, the intensely personal commitment he's sharing with the one he's discipling the truth the psalmist proclaims is the truth that he lives by when he is confronted with unknowns when he is struck by adversity when he is startled by disappointment when he is taunted by scorn when he is betrayed by friends when he is surprised by danger when breathing becomes difficult and death is lonely what does the psalmist say i will say to the lord my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And that leads us to our second response here. We see it in this personal testament. The second response is make trust personal. Make trust personal. You who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, have you been confirming your confidence in God in this current crisis? Have you been using possessive pronouns like my? Has God been your refuge? Or are you only telling others where they should place their confidence? We must not say with our mouths we trust in the Lord, but in our hearts actually be saying something else, something like this. My refuge, my family. My refuge, 
my home in which I trust. We must not say my fortress, my physical health, my fortress, my age, I'm still in college, my fortress, my finances, my security, my savings account, my safety in which I trust, all those other things. We must not say that those are our my, we must say my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Trust is confidence. Trust is confidence, and it's not only confidence in God's ability to bring us through this, through this current crisis, to the good outcome we desire. It's confidence in God's wisdom to bring us through to the good outcome that he desires. I'm going to say that again. Trust is not only confidence in God's ability to bring us through to the good outcome we desire, but in God's wisdom to bring us through to the good outcome that he desires. That's what trust is. Bring us to the outcome that he desires. Trust is not just confidence in God's ability to deliver to us our wills, like some DoorDash or Uber driver who's bringing us what we've ordered from the menu of life. It's confidence in God's wisdom to righteously administer his will for our good and his glory. And right now, brothers and sisters, that is being safer at home. That is going to hospitals for some of you and putting on face shields and N95s. See, trusting in God needs to be personal. Do you have confidence in the triune God's eternal plan made in eternity past? Do you have confidence in his sovereign oversight of the universe, in his control of every particle, of every cell, of every virus? Do you, do you have confidence in his control of every decision, of every government, local, and national, international? Do you have trust in his power and his wisdom directed towards you for your good and for his glory? Do you have enough confidence to make trust personal? Can you say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust? See, that is how the psalmist responds to the good news, to the profound truth of verse 1, with his personal testimony of verse 2. So the first response was to dwell in God's presence. The second response is to make trust personal. The psalmist con continues here, verses 3 through 13. It's a longer section. And he continues with bold encouragement next. He's proclaimed the profound truth in verse 1. He's confessed his own willingness in verse 2. And now he looks towards those who are listening. And he turns from the personal language of verse 2, my and I. And he uses you, the second person. Sing, the second person, singular you, is next. And he wants to encourage you to put your trust in the Lord. And the language that follows in verses 3 to 13 is the language of inv invincibility. Invincibility in the midst of danger and destruction. And I'm going to try to go through these verses, although there's a lot of them here, quickly so that we don't lose the impact of the whole. So let's start in verse 3. It is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. A snare is a metaphor for man-made traps. The pestilence is the dangerous sickness, as we well know. Both are hidden threats. They are invisible to human eyes. They're dangers for the strong as much as the weak. The psalmist puts the focus on God's Deliverance. He doesn't say that you won't be trapped. He doesn't say you won't be stricken. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. You don't need to fear what you can't see. Verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions. The outer feathers to help the bird fly. He'll cover you with his pinions. And under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. The psalmist pivots from the delivering action of God in verse 3 to his constant protection. First, he uses a motherly picture of chicks nestled beneath their mother's safe wings. 
if you need to see something cute, you can look on the interwebs for uh, interwebs. I say that, sorry. On the internet, you say I'm being silly. On the internet for uh, pictures of birds beneath their mother's wings, nestled beneath their mother's safe wings. So he first uses this motherly picture of protection, but then he switches to a military picture of a man hidden behind a large standing shield, kind of like a riot shield used by a by 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 a police officer. He has this large standing shield, but he also describes and and the numerica standard has ball work or the ESV has a buckler and either, both of them it's to be encircled by 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 protection, whether a large wall or a small shield like Captain America's. And what is this, this bulwark? What is this, this, this small shield? It is God's faithfulness. It is his faithfulness to his covenant promises. It is that God is truthful, that he always does what he says. Verse 5 continues this, this, this beautiful string of pictures. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. There's no need to fear an enemy attack, whether it comes secretly and sneakily at night like ninjas over the walls or boldly at broad daylight, whether an army's assault or a sniper's shot. Verse 6, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon, perhaps even more terrifying than physical attack. And I don't know, I've never been in battle. It's the invisible foe of disease. Whether it's the initial spread, the stalking in darkness, creeping from victim to victim, or full-on pandemic, the pandemic, the laying waste at noon. And again, both verses five and six, terror by night, arrows that fly by day, pestilence and darkness, destruction at noon. You will not be afraid of these. Verse 7, the, 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 the picture gets even more graphic in a sense. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. The picture of, of invincibility continues. Charging through the battlefield while others beside you are mowed down. You, you can imagine one of those slow motion battle scenes as someone's charging into battle and all around him, to his right and his left, People are shot down, but he's somehow invincibly going forward. Even if thousands were to die in battle around you, even if they were struck by the plague, you will not be touched, it says. Verse 8, you will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. And the psalmist interprets that this, this destruction here as a recompense of the wicked, the reward that rebels have earned against from God for their disobedience against him. But when God's people suffer, they don't suffer God's wrath. It's not judgment of their sin. Christ takes that punishment. Verse 9 continues, For you have made the Lord, and then he switches back to that first person, my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. He explains why this is going on. Why are you safe in the midst of all this turmoil and destruction? He steps away from his encouragement and comments on why these, these promises are yours. So he returns back to the promise of verse one, the confession of verse two. I've made the Lord my refuge, my dwelling place. And if you do the same, if you make my refuge your dwelling place, you can imagine Moses saying this to Joshua, or David to Solomon, or Paul to Timothy, or mom to daughter, father to son. If you make the Lord my refuge, your dwelling place, you will likewise be rescued from the wicked's, from the wicked's judgment, from what they deserve. Verse 10 continues. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. The encouragement continues. Evil is disaster, misfortune, calamity. Whatever the effects of the fall are, like God rescuing Israel from the plagues of the firstborn in Egypt. No plague will come near your tent. Verses 11 through 13 describes how God accomplishes this, this supernatural rescue. Verse 11, for he will give his angels charge concerning you. 
to guard you in all your ways. This is how God accomplishes the protection for his people. God intervenes, accomplishing his will by entrusting his people to angels. Now, there's much that we don't know about angels' ministry uh, 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 on this earth now. There's, 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 there's obviously a mystery here we don't understand how God accomplishes his sovereign protection of his people through his supernatural host. Although that is a theme in scripture, it's, it's not an often repeated theme, but it is a repeated theme. It describes that, that these angels guard you in all your ways, in your day-to-day lives. Verse 12, it says, they will bear you up in their hands, that you do not strike your foot against a stone, that they protect you against uh, harmful accidents, anything that would trip you up or slow you down from accomplishing God's purpose. Verse 13, you will tread upon the lion and, and cobra. The young lion and the serpent you will trample down. And here it goes from just avoiding an accident to outright victory over your foes. You'll be able to trample on lions. I don't think that's a good idea, but you can trample lions. You can trample on snakes. Whether these foes are from the world of nature or from the world of men, you will be safe. You'll be more than survivors. You'll be victors. Now, Verses 3 through 13 here. It's this powerful picture. Almost all of it in this second person, you. The psalmist is encouraging you, the one he's speaking to. Trust in the Lord. He promises supernatural protection from enemies, from sickness, from God's own judgment upon the wicked, from any misfortune, any harm, any hostility. And I know you're wondering, but I got in a car accident. But there's... There's the coronavirus spreading. What do I do with these promises? Well, Satan reveals what not to do with these promises. So when Satan does something, you should run the opposite way. Satan actually uses this verse when he's testing Jesus and tempting him in Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. And and you might have uh, heard some of this, this the, the, the Solomon remembered where you had heard this. The devil took Jesus into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes from Psalm 91. He's saying, Jesus, prove that you're in a right relationship with God. Prove that you are the son of God. Demonstrate it by casting yourself off the temple and let God do what he said he's going to do and rescue you. But Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So please, as you listen to Psalm 91, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Psalm 91 is not a charm to be worn around your neck. You don't have superpowers. He's not encouraging doctors to roll off their gloves and throw them away, take off their mask and go into into the coronavirus war. He's not encouraging soldiers to throw off their, their, their Kevlar vests. This is not permission to reckless abandon. I feel like this message needs a legal disclaimer for anyone with a a uh, skateboard, a BMX bike, um, any kind of dangerous profession out there. There should be fine print, and the fine print says, don't do anything stupid. Psalm 91 does not protect you from doing stupid things. So what are we supposed to do with these bold promises? Focus on the task at hand. Now, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this this psalm. And this psalm is written towards people who were at times in danger. It was written towards people at times who, who suffered at the hands of their enemies. Towards people at times who got sick. Yet, it has this bold promise here. So, what is the psalmist doing? Well, he wants you to respond. And here's the third response. The first response is he wants you to dwell in God's presence. The second was to make trust personal. And the third is to obey emboldened by God's protection. Obey emboldened by God's protection. And that's what he's doing with these verses 3 through 13 here. 
He, he's, he wants your soul to be thrilled knowing that your God is sovereign and that he controls over the whole universe and that he actually sends angels so that you can do what he's commanded you to do in safety. See, neither the power of God nor the character of God has changed from Psalm 91. God still takes his people under their wing. He is their riot shield. He is their N95 mask. God is their protection. And God remains faithful to his covenant promises. That's why I wanted to begin reading this morning from Romans 8. We have this new covenant. We are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, and he would have known Psalm 91. He's really able to apply some of Psalm 91 to this church age. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the message of Psalm 91. So as you read this psalm, as, as you are impacted by the breadth of these images in verses 3 through 13, allow God's care. Allow God's covenantal faithfulness to you in Christ Jesus. Allow that to enable your obedience without fear so you can focus on obeying him. You are invincible until God reveals otherwise, which he will to all of us, whether it's by catching the flu, whether it's by being in a car accident, whether it's living to an age of 114. George Whitfield famously said, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. And that's the heart of Psalm 91. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. God will sustain your obedience while you fulfill his will. God will sustain your obedience. And that's what is happening in 3 through 13. The saint committed to obeying him, and it, and, and, and it could be one of these, these biblical heroes like, like Moses or Joshua accomplishing a, 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 a specific task. Or it may be you in your home this week obeying him. God is enabling you to obey him. There is no need to fear, so go and obey. And this is the cry of missionaries, regardless of, of, of the danger of being murdered. God has the capacity to preserve every missionary from every danger until they fulfill the task that they've been sent on. And this must be our cry today as we fulfill the task, the, the, the charge that God has given us. God will strengthen you to obey his commands, to fulfill his commission on this fallen earth as long as he wants you to obey. So we can respond by obeying, emboldened by God's protection. So as you have opportunity again later, read through that psalm, verses 3 through 13, and then get excited to go obey. Now, doctors, don't get excited to throw off your mask. We still want to be wise. We want to use God's uh, uh, ordained means of protecting us. Don't make him send out an angel unless, unless he wants to. But you, in all of your areas of obedience, obey emboldened by God's protection. We are immortal until our work is done. That's the heart of the soul. And we can see that because of what happens next. See, the psalmist becomes prophet. The psalmist, has been, the psalmist has been instructing the one he's mentoring. And he says, you, you, you. And he, and he throws on all these promises of God's protection at him to encourage him to make God his dwelling place, to make trust personal. And then in verses 14 to 16, God speaks and the psalmist becomes prophet. God seals the psalmist's, the psalmist's bold encouragement with his promise. See, the person who trusts is described in three ways in verses 14 and, and, and 15, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 14 and 16 first. Because, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high. This I here is God speaking. Because he has known my name, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. 
with a long life I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. See, this is God speaking here at the end. It was a psalmist in verses 3 through 13 speaking, and, and, and still inspired word. But here, God enters the scene. And he gives his encouragement. And he describes the person who trusts it in three ways. In verse 14, describing him as the one who has loved me. It's another, it's another way to describe the one who has made trust personal. He has loved me. It's a special word for love and a not often used word. It's a love that desires and longs for, but then clings to the object love. It is love which is devoted to the one who he loves. The psalmist also describes him as, or in the gospel here, as the one who has known my name. It's to know God's nature and his works. As revealed in his word to know God, the, the God of scripture. The God who has done the amazing miracles of, of creation and of making covenants and of rescuing Egypt, of sending prophets, and then ultimately revealing himself in the Son, in his Son. Describes the one who trusts as the one who's loved me, as the one who's known my name, and also as the one who will call upon me in verse 15. This is the one who trusts the one who appeals to God, who implores to God to make himself known. He's only expecting help to come from one place. Is that you? Are you the one who loves him, who clings to him? Are you the one who knows him, who, who, who is familiar with the God of Scripture, who trusts in the God of Scripture? Are you the one who calls on him? Well, look at what God promises to do to the one who trusts in him. And he says eight things, and, and, and I'll count them off in verses 14 to 16. Because he has loved me, therefore, one, I will deliver him. Two, I will set him securely on high, because he has known my name. He will call upon me. Three, I will answer him. Four, I will be with him in trouble. Five, I will rescue him. Six, and honor him. Seven, with a long life, I will satisfy him. And eight, let him see my salvation. This leads us to our fourth and final response that we should respond to this psalm. First, we saw we need to dwell in God's presence. We need to make trust personal. We need to obey, emboldened by God's protection. And last, we need to expect God to keep his promises. We need to expect God to keep his promises. So, brothers and sisters, I want us to be careful here to not get lost looking at how the specifics of these promises are going to apply in your situation, so much so that we forget the heart of these promises. I just want you to imagine for a second the Apostle Paul reading this when he was finally given his death sentence under Emperor Nero, and he is waiting execution. And we have no idea, no doubt he being a Pharisee had memorized or perhaps the psalm, he probably knew it well. Psalm 91, just think about him reading through these words and, 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 and thinking, okay, he's, how's he going to deliver me? How's he going to set me on high here? You know, that the, the axe is about to fall. How's he going to honor me in this? How's he going to satisfy me with a long life? He's not going to look at these verses and say, you know, I guess this is kind of more of an Old Testament promise. This, this must have just worked under the Old Covenant. Well, we can ask ourselves then, well, what did Old Testament saints who suffer? Like the prophet Jeremiah, who was beaten and imprisoned. What did he think as he read this? Well, you know, those verses really don't apply to me. It only applies in the Messianic reign, or they only apply when God's people obey his law, his, 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 his Mosaic covenant, and then these promises come into effect. In the Messianic reign, when Jesus reigns on earth for a thousand years, or if, or if Israel had obeyed God's commands during the Mosaic covenant, you wouldn't need these kinds of promises. These are promises of rescue. It's promises of honor to those who are ashamed. See, these promises are for us now as much as they were in the Old Testament times. Those saints read Psalm 91, whether a prophet like Jeremiah 
or the Apostle Paul or missionaries who've been martyred, we all read this in the same way. We trust with expectancy. We expect God to keep his promises. God will keep his promises. These promises are for us. We just have to let him decide how he's going to, to, to fulfill them and keep them. Will it be in this life or in the life to come? There was a time where Paul was going to be executed. See, if God chooses to not deliver us in this life, we know that he will in the next. If God chooses not to honor us among men now, we know that we will be honored by him eternally. If God chooses not to give us length of days, and some of us he doesn't, although many he does, but if he chooses not to, if our days are cut short, we know that our days around his throne worshiping his son will be eternal. We know that we will see salvation in our Savior's face. We trust with expectancy, but we also trust with humility. God is going to keep his promises how he pleases for his good, for our good and for his glory. No saint is ever going to feel slighted. It doesn't matter if we die from this virus or any other way. It doesn't matter if we die in this week or 50 or 60 or 70 years from now. None of us are ever going to say, you know, I wish I had more length of days. I really wish he hadn't let me die. No, we're going to see our Lord face to face. We are going to see the salvation of Yahweh, Jesus Christ. See, we don't know how God is going to keep these promises. We don't know how long his angels will keep preventing our foot from, from slipping or keeping the serpents trampled underfoot. But God has given his son all authority on heaven and on earth. God will keep our foot from striking rock. God will keep our foot from being struck by a serpent as long as we have work from the Father to do on this earth. And that is the great encouragement of this psalm. We can expect God to keep his promises so that we can be liberated to go forth and obey. We can expect God to keep every one of his promises. We just leave it to him exactly how. And we take from this psalm the, the rich encouragement that was meant for our souls. You know, it was not just ancients uh, uh, who, who wore amulets with Psalm 91 on them. There is a woman, uh, Jill Boyce, known as the Psalm 91 Bandana Lady. Now, wait a second. You'll see where I'm going with this. The Psalm 91 Bandana Lady. And this lady, uh, Jill Boyce, describes a dream she had. In January of 2003, I had a dream that I was, was in Iraq in the middle of fighting between our soldiers and, and, and Saddam Hussein's. The next day, I envisioned a bandana with Psalm 91 written down the middle. I researched and found out that Psalm 91 was a soldier's prayer, and it's been often called that, that many lives had been saved through it in previous wars. I found a way to have some printed and was able to give Psalm 91 bandanas to troops deploying from Fort Hood on the first day of deployment in March 2003. Since then, over a million Psalm 91 bandanas have been distributed worldwide, changing lives one bandana at a time. I'm not making that up. A Psalm 91 bandana won't save anyone. It won't save you from a bullet. It won't save you from a virus. But the God of the Bible in Psalm 91 guarantees to protect his people so that they are liberated from the fear of danger, from the fear of death, and so that they can pursue wholehearted obedience to him. That is what it means to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It's not about hunkering down, and I'm not encouraging you. Be safer at home. Stay where the government tells you. It's not about just trying to stay safe. It's about being emboldened to obey under God's protection and to expect God to keep his promises. Let's pray. My dear Father, I thank you uh, for this thrilling 
a psalm. And it really is thrilling to see these, these, these pictures of protection piled up. And I know, Father, that we have seen this in, in, in supernatural ways, even reading with, with, with my girls about Gideon recently and how you chose to defeat the Midianites with just 300 soldiers. Father, there have been times in, in, in this way, in this world, uh, or, 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 or Paul on the Isle of Malta when he was bit by the snake and, and everyone expected him to die, but he didn't. There have been times where, where we have seen your supernatural protection of your people. And yet, Father, there are many times we don't see your angels protecting us, Lord. We don't even know what we've been protected from. We just know, Father, that you are sovereign. We know that you are sovereign. And we know that you are good. And so, Father, I pray that we would uh, take the instruction of this psalm. First of all, Lord, that we would make sure that we are those who are truly dwelling in your presence. And, Father, I do pray for those um, who are not really um, welcomed in your presence yet. And not only welcomed as you are appealing to them, but, Father, if they were to come into your presence at this moment, if they were to suddenly die, that they would be destroyed. They would know you as a consuming fire and your holiness would devour them. They wouldn't be able to stand in the judgment. Father, I pray that they would take the warning, that they would see in this time of uncertainty, that they can hide in you, that you can be their hiding place, but they have to come through your son. I pray, Father, for those who are sitting on the fence, maybe waiting till they are older to repent. I pray, Father, that they would fly to Jesus Christ for safety. Not, not just safety from this virus, but from something so much serious, Lord, from your own holy wrath, Lord. May they find rescue in your Son. May they put their hope in his sacrifice on their behalf. May they make you their dwelling place so that they might enjoy the rest of their days, the shadow of the Almighty, Lord. I do pray for my brothers and sisters listening this morning that they would enjoy the shadow of the Almighty, Lord, that they would take that noonday rest really all day long, knowing that you are sovereign, knowing that all of your power is directed towards accomplishing your will in their lives for their good and for your glory. May they be encouraged. May they be emboldened to obey, Lord. I pray, Father, for those who are even considering missions, Lord, who are considering going overseas but have been afraid, Lord. I pray that this psalm would be an encouragement to them. Not that nothing bad would ever happen to them, Lord, but that, um, but that you will protect them and protect their family until they accomplish the will that you have ordained for them. Lord, I pray, Father, that all of us would be emboldened to obey, Lord, that we would take your commission for us seriously, Lord, that we would go wholehearted into obedience. Lord, and I pray, Father, that for us, Lord, regardless of what job field we, 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 we have, Lord, we do know that doctors are, are dealing with, with, with patients with this virus. They don't want to spread it to their families. I pray that they would be comforted that as they dwell in you, that they are in your shadow. Lord, we thank you that no good, no, no truly evil thing, well, that no evil thing, I'm not even going to say that no evil thing befalls us, but everything, evil things do happen, but that they are in your sovereignty and that you have a good plan for your people be transformed to the image of your son, and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So thank you for these, for these promises. I do pray, Father, that, that, that people would be encouraged as they meditate on Psalm 91 in the upcoming week, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.